I hope you have in your life a person or persons whose lives are wonderfully expressive of the realities of the Christian faith. They've been consistent and consistently on point in showing you the way of Jesus. Our churches need more folks like that. Welcome, everyone. This is the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. And I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and your Bible teacher. If you wish to learn more about our work to raise up evangelists and church planters around the world, go to traincpe.org, traincpe.org. And to learn about our church in Boise, Idaho, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Paul is introducing the heartbeats of his ministry to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 7-13. through 13. And as he does, he lays before those he's writing to the secret of his sustained and faithful work. It is not an endeavor of his energies. He knows he's engaged in a spiritual work. Well, as we said, we're at the threshold of a wonderful book that Paul is writing, and he's writing to a group of individuals, a newly formed church that he's yet to visit, but he longs to visit with them, and he wants to lay out before them the essential truths of the gospel. He wants to lay it out before them so that they can be established and grow in those truths, and so that through those truths, they might, he might with them reach out to see others one to Jesus Christ. And before Paul launches into his instruction, he pauses and takes a moment to just clarify to them what his spirit is, what his attitude is, what is in his heart and his mind towards them as he approaches them with this instruction that he's going to give them. A person's head can be full of accurate biblical information and precise theology and still be quite useless in communicating the great truths of God to God's people quite useless in the instruction that God would have them give us and other individuals in order to bring that person nearer to God and in a sense through that instruction bring God in nearer to that individual. It's not enough that we should be knowledgeable or adept in our communication skills, knowledgeable of God's truth, adept in our ability to communicate those skills. This week I was speaking an individual who was sharing with me 17 different rules they follow in preparing their sermons. And I can't remember three or four, but actually they were good rules, every single one of them. But you can be good at all 17 of those rules and still falter and fail in what it is that God would have you communicate to God's people. Actually, we can communicate God's truth in such a way that instead of bringing those truths forward in a person's life, instead of giving credit to the word of God and bringing the power of that word to an individual's life, we can actually undermine it by the very manner in which we approach people, by oftentimes the very methods that we use in approaching people, by the attitudes that we have. So Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1. He says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but I have not love, I become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. James refers to this as well in his letter to the churches. And he speaks of those who are brought forward to teach and instruct the body of Christ. And yet he tells them that if their attitudes are not in accord with what they're teaching, that they actually will be boasting, he says, and lying against the truth. If they're motivated by selfish ambition, if they're motivated and their ministry is in a sense placated or carried out by self-seeking, James says that, They will appear to be boasting in the truth, but actually they'll be lying against it. Their boast will be proven to be false. 
their mindset, their heart will actually undermine the very things that God wants to express and God wants to explain and they'll be found, not that the truth is untruthful, not that their saying is untruthful, but they will be found untruthful in the very manner in which they say it. It undermines the message. But Paul here shows us the proper set of mind and heart from which God's truth and God's gospel is to go forward into the lives of others to their benefit and to God's glory. And so here he shows us, and I'm mindful of this, how the pastor is to behave and orient himself to those that he serves and ministers to. And here he shows us, and you should be mindful of this, of how you should be orientating yourself towards one another in the body of Christ, and then how together we might orient our heart and minds towards those who are outside of Christ. I want to give a bit of a quick review of what we talked about last week, and we mentioned that although Paul is not instructing at this point in time, he's just explaining something that is hard. What he explains and reveals to us in himself is very instructive. It's very informative, and it's very rich, and it's very deep. And I do want to review, but I want to point out another thing that Paul says here in the passage that we're looking at. It's in verse 9, and it reveals to us, in a sense, the secret that holds together these words and this attitude and these actions that Paul is stating. Paul says, speaking of God, he says, I serve him with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Now, there are individuals who have taken that passage and said that what Paul is basically saying is, I serve the Lord with all my heart, or I serve the Lord with enthusiastically, and that might be true. Paul might be saying, I serve the Lord enthusiastically in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it means more than that. I think Paul is speaking to a transformative change that's taken place in his life where he has been renewed by the Spirit of Christ. And in this state of being a new man, he now brings forward a ministry that is authored and carried forward by the Spirit of God himself. You'll remember that when the Lord Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, the woman who had had multiple husbands and the first person that she was with at that time was not her husband. She asked, where should we worship God? She's a Samaritan. Should we worship God in this mountain or should we worship where you Jews say that we should worship God in, in Jerusalem? And Jesus answers and says, I tell you, not in this mountain or any other mountain, but the day is coming when all people will worship God in spirit and in truth for the spirit of God is searching or looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now you have to kind of juxtapose that declaration by Jesus to the conversation he had just prior to that with the man Nicodemus in the middle of the night. Nicodemus is a leader of the Sanhedrin. He's a man whose worship everybody would think was quite wonderful and quite profound. He was a man who with all of his heart and with all of his enthusiasm gave himself to following all the laws and following all the prescriptions of worship in the temple. And yet when he came to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus said to him, you must be born again. Your worship is inadequate. Your religion is inadequate unless you have a new life in you. Now, when you come to Christ and you believe in him and you receive him as your savior, and that moment, you're born again and you receive a new spirit and you're a new creation. You're a new being. And it's with that spirit that Jesus is speaking about when he speaks to the woman at the well. So to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. And in essence, to the woman at the well, he says, you can be born again. But it's the basis from which we bring forward our ministry and our worship. So when Paul says of God, in whom I serve in my spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's not saying, in whom I give it my all, in whom I do it with great enthusiasm, in whom I do it with all my heart. He's, he's saying my, my very life has been changed. 
I have a new spirit. I'm a new man in Christ. And by that spirit, I commune with the spirit of God. And in that fellowship with the spirit of God, he is working in me and producing in me this ministry that I engage in. And we'll notice here, by the way, that the context in which Paul says this is in the context of his unceasing prayer for the church in Rome. It's this application of ministry that he gives in praying for the church at Rome. But here as well, he's not saying, I just do it with all my heart. I'm very enthusiastic when I pray for you. No, he says, I pray for you unceasingly. Listen, no matter how enthusiastic you are, if you just draw up upon all your strength, you will not be able to pray unceasingly. It's only as God working in the transformed heart of the transformed believer who has received new life through Jesus Christ. And the Spirit works within that individual that he produces this kind of worship, this kind of religion, this care for others and this spirit of prayer. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is addressing the church and he's describing to them their conduct that they should have among one another and within their own homes and with each other and within the community that they live. And he's going to call upon them to join, to gather together, to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. He tells them first that they must be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual enterprise. It's a spiritual work that God must produce and God must develop. And that is in essence, what Paul is referring to here. And that's the secret to what we see in his attitude and his actions. This is not born out of his flesh. This is not the orchestration of his own willpower, refining of his own skills and his own ability or his own intellectual capacities and his ability to communicate that to others. This is a man who comes before these individuals, transformed by the Spirit of God and in communion with the Spirit of God, bringing forward by the Spirit of God the ministry that the Spirit of God is authoring in his life. And that's what precedes all this. Now here are the things that begin to flow out of this life in the Spirit. And we mentioned two of them last week. And we said the first thing here is that Paul identifies those that he's speaking to in Rome who are mostly Gentiles as belonging to the people of God. He takes the words and the descriptors that are given in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, to the chosen people of Israel of God, and now he applies it to these Gentiles in Rome. And, and you know, later Paul is going to explain to them that because of Israel's disobedience, they have been taken out of the branch of God's covenant promises and that these Gentiles have been grafted in. And he's going to remind them not to boast against Israel because God still has a plan for them. But Paul is explaining to them, you now are a part of this community. You're a part of this covenant relationship and he addresses them in that condition, in that state. And we said, listen, when we approach one another and we commune with one another, how do we see one another? Do we see one another as people who are the people of God? Do we identify one another and do we engage with one another as members of the family of God, chosen by him, loved by him, called by him? Recipients, special recipients of the grace of his salvation, extending out throughout our lives, recipients of the unique position of peace and reconciliation with God and learning to live in the presence of God in that fullness. If we did see each other in that way, it would change the way that we engaged one another and we interacted with one another. And Paul says that's his attitude towards these people in Rome. And the next thing we said is that not only does Paul say, this is how I see you, but then Paul says, I'm thankful that that's the case. I'm glad that it's so. He's not begrudging that God somehow has extended to the Gentiles what God had given to his nation, the Israelites. Paul had been an Israelite. He was proud of his nation. You can see as we go through the book of Romans that Paul still has a great affection for the people of Israel and a great sense of identity 
with their identity with God and what God is planning for them, but now Paul realizes that God has brought into his plan the Gentiles and called them to himself through Jesus Christ. And Paul acknowledges that truth initially, and he says, this is how I see you. But then the next thing Paul says is, I'm glad that that's the case. I'm happy, I rejoice that that's the case. So again, we made the comment that there is something within the body of Christ that should see one another as belonging to the body of Christ, but then also we should be glad that we belong to the body of Christ. We should rejoice that just in the testimony that we have trusted and believed in him. Now, having said that, we've come to this third observation that I want to make, and it's this. Starting with these attitudes and this spirit, this identifying the church and these new believers as members of the people of God and rejoicing that this is the case, then these wonderful attitudes set upon Paul and bring into him an activity of vigilant prayer for those that he's writing to. So this is what we read in verse 9. We've referenced it already. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Before we sign off for this broadcast, I want to remind you of a ministry website that we've developed. It is testyourtestimony.com. Our concern is that there are many in our churches who do not have a true born-again relationship with Jesus Christ and so face the prospect of his rejection at the judgment seat in the last day. Our pity for these has made us develop the site testyourtestimony.com in order to apply the command of 2 Corinthians 13.5 to test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. For now, I look forward to our next time partaking together of the bread of life. Till then, may God bless you.